This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Dan Loney. Welcome back. Hour number two of Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. President Trump has moved on in his two-week trip to Asia from China to Vietnam, but in his time in China, the president believes he was able to broker uh, some change on trade and get deals done. The Commerce Department released a list of 37 companies that signed deals with Chinese firms around that current trip. They include companies like Boeing, Caterpillar, General Electric, and Goldman Sachs. And the administration is touting the fact that these are examples of good bilateral deals. Meanwhile, at the same time, a lot of focus is coming forth on President Xi of China and seemingly a new openness that he and China are looking to bring forth. To take a look at this piece of the trip, we are joined uh, in studio by Minwan Zhao, who's an associate professor of management here at the Wharton School. And joining us on the phone, Jacques Delisle, who's a law professor at the University of Pennsylvania, as well as director of the Center for East Asian Studies here at the school. Minwan, great to see you again. Thanks for coming great in. To be here. Thank you. Jacques, great to have you on. Joining us from Washington, D.C. today. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, I mean, we've had the deals that obviously announced. We've had some of the rhetoric as well. How do you view those couple of days, Minwan, that, that President Trump and, and President Xi got together? I think overall, both parties are happy. You know, the the fear is any potential clash, no matter how minor it is, it's going to cast a shadow for the future negotiations. At least the both parties seems to have a good time. And, uh, you know, I know there's a lot of controversy about what $250 billion mean. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's a positive tone. And we can elaborate on this. But from both sides, you can see some concession made. And it's, yeah, setting a positive tone, that's all that matters when the two leaders met. Chuck? Well, that's right. It clearly was a an attempt to tap into the same chemistry that we saw on Xi's visit to Mar-a-Lago back earlier in, uh, in Trump's presidency. Uh, but as with all things, uh, the devil's in the details. This is a summit, or a, a state visit plus, as the Chinese call it, uh, that was going to be short on deliverables, and indeed it was. The $240 billion is a lot of stuff that would have happened anyway, and we haven't seen concrete progress on the particular trade issues that were on the table, although there were some positive noises from China on things like reducing tariffs on car imports, opening the financial services sector, okay. things like that. What's striking is how much Trump took down and did not press the things he'd been talking about before going. Not just the general China rapes the U.S. in economic relations and trade, but also the more concrete things like forced transfers or uh, coerced, if you will, transfers of intellectual property and so on. Uh, so Trump was really quite muted, uh, which made the relationship look good when he was in Beijing. But now he's off in Da Nang and talking a somewhat different game. It's a little right. more economic nationalist. Well, and, and that's a piece to it is obviously, it was, as Jacques mentioned, the devil's in the details. But mm -hmm. in this case, a lot of times the devil's in the tweets, you know, depending <laughs> on, on what's coming forward. Correct. Right. But if you look at the tweets coming from China, um, a lot of Chinese were amazed about, you know, the details, this detail, right? He, why he was able to send out tweets. It's uh, an interesting detail a lot yeah. of Chinese were talking about. But um, it's very positive in China. But as Jacques said, you know, a lot of the um, comments he made before the trip, like intellectual property rights, trade, uh, trade barriers, he brought this up today in Vietnam. So 
um, it's hard to make sense of. You know whether this is just a courtesy, trying to maintain a positive tone. You know when I mean a host country, or this is truly a change in the direction. And a part of this also is that we don't know to a degree really what has happened behind the scenes with the trade representatives themselves and the conversations that they had. Right. We can kind of assume to a degree what has happened, but again, until we actually know, you know, get a little further down the road, I, I think we really won't know what. All has been discussed, and and part of it may very well have been intellectual property issues. Right, uh, an interesting. Uh, I don't know what Jacques thinks, but to me, it's really interesting when he says that China did all these horrible things, but they rightly did so in their own interest. Right, right, right. So uh, th- this is very transactional, and this is playing the music Chinese love to listen. Um, it was. You know everything for the for themselves, and that also gives him justification for this, you know, America-centered policy because China is defending on its own interest. China、mm-hmm. is doing all these terrible things to the U.S. for its own in,、uh, own interest. I don't blame them because that's what I'm going to do for the U.S. Jacques, yeah, well, I think it is an interesting juxtaposition. It is in, a, in effect saying to other countries, "You can be the mirror image of what I'm doing with economic nationalism," and it does sort of justify Trump's position. But there's also a bit of a flavor of Trump talks a very tough line, a very a hard game until he is face to face with his interlocutor, and particularly if his interlocutor is a kind of authoritarian ruler whose level of power Trump appears to admire. Suddenly, these things take a back step, a back seat. Now, you know, there are of course discussions going on that aren't part of the. Sound bites you get from the leaders, and those clearly are going on on the issues we've been talking about between the two countries. But it's striking that they clearly had made so little progress, despite the hundred days reform we were promised at Mar-a-Lago, and so on. If we'd really seen significant progress on these issues, we would have expected to see a statement at the summit, at the, at the visit、uh, by Trump to Beijing. That it hasn't happened suggests this hasn't been worked out. But I'm sure they are working on it. There have been enough、uh, eruptions just above the surface of references to intellectual property and other issues that we know this. Those、uh, discussions are going on; they just haven't reached a resolution yet.、Mm-hmm. What do you think、uh, th- these last few days and, and these thoughts of、uh, of a new openness where China is concerned really say about President Xi? And obviously, we've kind of had this conversation over the last few months, especially when he came here to the United States, and, and obviously, you know, was to a degree extending the olive branch of coming here to the U.S. Right. Well, it's interesting if we can combine what she said in China and what he said in、uh, in Vietnam. The question is,、uh, opening in whose terms? Right. Right. So, in I think both sides. If you look at、uh, Trump's comment today, it's not about we're going to close down. You know, he's saying we're going to have the, all the bilateral agreements. We're going to negotiate. With countries one by one、right. until we're happy with the terms. So and the, and the China was like we are going to open up, but we have our terms. So it's very clear they're going to open up, but it's it's about the, you know who has the say in the details.、Um, what's interesting about the multilateral terms is that the whole purpose of setting up multilateral platforms like World Trade Center uh, or uh, trade organization is to take the. Initiatives out of individuals to have your hands tied.、Right. You know the politicians can go back to their voters to say, "Hey, it's not like I don't care about unemployment. I don't care about the closed factories, but my hands are tied because we're in WTO.、Yeah. You know, I really don't have any discretion in my hand to change the situation." And that's the whole purpose of multilateral deals to take the kind of.、Um, 
the incentive to make any last-minute changes out of the individual、uh, policymakers.、Uh, but if in the、uh, if we switch the Platform to bilateral deals, then the large powers will dominate. Well, and, yeah, and obviously we're talking about a, a much lengthier process to be able to get the the exact deal done that you want to have to begin with. And as you alluded to,、mm. the smaller guy or the small guy、mm. in the deal、yeah. is not going to have as much influence when you're talking about. Maybe working together with eight or nine parties is compared to one on one. Right, and, and the the large countries like bilateral deals, and、um, I think the other advantage is not only about lengthy negotiation because WTO had a really lengthy negotiation, like every round it takes、yeah. a decade, but also the the urge to change. Right, how stable those terms are. You know, supposedly the, the WTO do,、uh, deals are going to stay stable for some time, but、uh, Trump claims we're going to renegotiate the deal with South Korea. We may pull out ourselves up if the、uh, the terms are good enough. So、uh, bilateral deals have the risk of any party pulling out if things don't go their way. Jack.、Right? Well, I think that bilateral、uh, deals and multilateral deals have a bunch of differences. Minyan just alluded to one of them, and, and this has been a very prominent feature of China's multilateral、uh, trade and economic diplomacy. That is, Chinese leaders who want to push reforms, including reforms that will be painful to certain stakeholders at home, have often entered into an international deal and then used the international deal as leverage to push through reforms. We saw this with Premier Zhu Rongji and China's entering the WTO back around 2000. We saw it again when China wanted the renminbi to be part of the currency bucket.、Uh, there are special drawing rights under the IMF. These are all things that require internationally changes at home, and Chinese leaders have used that to push through changes that they want.、Uh, but that's not 100% across the board liberalization. It's things that serve their own policy purposes. Trump's approach, I think, is, is very, very different. He obviously doesn't like that.、Uh, but what multilateral deals also do, and part of the appeal of the TPP. Uh, during the Obama administration into the U.S., so when it was in a more liberal、uh, mind frame in terms of、uh, liberalizing and integrating、uh, the global economy, the view was you do these big multilateral deals because then everybody gets something and everybody is bound in a relatively legalistic process. They face essentially quasi-judicial dispute resolution. So the idea is to do this mega deal with multiple trade-offs and a great deal of enforceability.、Uh, Trump really doesn't like that. I mean, he's denied that these are enforceable. I think that's really the wrong critique. His real critique is he thinks he will do better in bilateral deals. That may be true、uh, if you think you've really got realistic alternatives. The risk now is that the TPP 11, that is the TPP group minus、yeah. the U.S., will go and do its own deal, and the U.S. is going to be left on the sidelines. And Trump has really yielded U.S. leadership on these issues to China, and China is stepping right into that vacuum. Well, and that brings up another question: Is that do you expect, meanwhile, the 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 quote unquote TPP 11 to really move forward and to be a a, a, a successful pact moving forward? I think there's very mixed feelings in that.、Um, on the one hand,、uh, a trade platform without a big big economies seems. If you're talking about economies of scale and scope, but the benefit、yeah. out of trade deals,、uh, having large markets there certainly matters.、Um, on the other hand, the reason why TPP was established was to establish, you know, some kind of counterweight because China has its own free trade agreement. You know,、right. China is pushing for its own、uh, trade block, so、uh, the, it's considered a competition to the trade block China was pushing for until U.S. 
uh, withdrawal from TPP. So uh, it's hard to shift this initial role TPP was going to play. Hmm. Um, you know, if you add China in, then it's basically equivalent to the the deal China was pushing. Jacques, let me ask you ask you about a story which is uh, starting to make news as well in the last uh, uh, several hours about uh, China announcing that they're going to allow more foreign uh, investment, more foreign ownership uh, of companies within China and, and allow basically a majority ownership by an outside entity in China. What do you think the, the, the move is there and the impact? Well, to some extent, that's been allowed you know, for a very, very long time. China okay. for 20, 30 years now has had mechanisms whereby foreigners can majority and indeed entirely own enterprises in China. The question is always, where do you draw that boundary? What sectors are open? How much are big state-owned companies up for acquisition or major uh, well-connected companies up? And so, you know, it's a question of just how liberal that's going to get. Any sign of liberalization is uh, welcome. Uh, I think part of what's going on in the Xi era is is that there is this sense of reform needs to go further but one doesn't want reform going further in his mind in ways that that uh, injure the prospect of China developing national champions in certain sectors and so on. Uh, so it really sort of depends on what the exact contours of this are. But I think it's part of a broader strategy to push forward to some extent with marketization and to bring in uh, foreign competition and to some degree foreign know-how to either put pressure on or partner with Chinese enterprises, which need to get more competitive in a global sense. No, I, th- I totally agree. I think um, foreign know-how and the positive effect of competition with global giants, these are certainly the benefits China was hoping for. There's also, you know, the the idea that certain industries in China has been strong enough to withstand competition. Mm-hmm. You know, yesterday, we had the conversation about the whole e-commerce sector, right? You can yeah. open up for any foreign ownership, and it's very hard to shake the, the uh, dominance of WeChat, uh, Alibaba, and so on. So um, even in the financial sector, uh, it, it's completely different from 20 years ago, where if you allow foreigners come in, they will dominate the whole area. Uh, now there's enough you know, vibrance and uh, infrastructure established by the local entities. They feel comfortable to open up in a, in a limited um in a limited scope, uh, the fear, so I talked with some multinational companies, the fear is that China will open up in areas where they are confident enough to compete, which mm-hmm. means there's little money for the foreigners to earn. So, what do you think is the view of uh, of President Xi right now within China? And obviously, there have been quite a few issues as well. Uh, it hasn't always been a you know a, a walk down the garden path for President Xi over mm-hmm. the last few months. But how do you think he is viewed in general right now? Shock. Um, well, I mean, clearly he's come out of the 19th Party Congress. Every five years. Uh, China has a party congress, and the way it's worked in the recent cycles is the guy who has come into office after the party congress five years ago, 18th party congress when Xi came formally to power, five years in when he gets renewed for his second term, uh, that's the moment to really uh, stand up as, as the leader and to kind of articulate the policy vision for the period. And I think pretty much everybody agrees that the 19th party congress was a moment that at the very least recognized, and I think as a practical matter, also further advanced his remarkable consolidation of power. If you were to turn the clock back five, six years, very, very few people would have predicted that Xi Jinping would have gathered as much power in his hands as he has. Uh, That's not much in dispute. The question is, what is he going to do with it? And he's got a bunch of agendas, uh, a bunch of items on his agenda. 
Uh, there is some hope that, that he will take the occasion of his consolidation of power and push forward with some of the economic reforms we've long been talking about. I think that hope has waned somewhat. He's had a very robust anti-corruption drive. The question is what happens next with that. So we've got this power. The question is what exactly is he going to do with it? And there I think it's a little hard to tell. It may be a little too early, and the signals have been mixed. He clearly is ready to push forward this idea that China is now the, a great power, a, a, an incipient superpower that's going to stand up for its interests and preferences in the international system. It's going to be more assertive. But what that means in terms of the kinds of things we're talking about, where exactly the line will be drawn between efforts to protect and advance Chinese economic interests in a somewhat mercantilist uh, state industry champion view and how much it's going to be to push forward with reforms that I think they agree are needed for efficiency, I think that's going to take a little while to shake out. Yeah, I, I didn't speak because, um, first of all, if you talk to 10 different people, especially 10 people from 10 different um, sectors of life, they are going to tell you 10 different versions. Right. So depending on whether you're intellectual, whether you are, um, you know, factory worker, or you are a businessman looking for reforms, you're SOE leader, um, different walks of life views him in very different ways. And on top of that, some opinions you will hear and some opinions you will never hear, right? Um, given that any sample anyone can get will be uh, very biased. So um, it's really hard to tell on aggregate how he is perceived in China. 844-942-7866, if you'd like, with your comments or questions, 844-942-7866 is the number. Jacques, obviously one of the things that, that the president has played up is the trade deficit issue, uh, and seemingly that obviously doesn't impact it immediately. Uh, is How much of it is a concern in your mind? Well, the bilateral U.S.-China trade deficit isn't really anything worth focusing on. Uh, there's, we can have a long debate about how much trade deficits matter in general. Right. Uh, they tend to be reflective of certain underlying features, and in the U.S. case, problematic features of the economy. But the bilateral U.S.-China trade deficit is really the product of China being the last stop in the global supply chain of mm -hmm. things that we import. Uh, so you know, the, the, the Trump has a sort of throwback view of trade deficits. He really focuses immediately on the bilateral uh, bilateral question and whether we're in surplus or in deficit. That's really not a very sensible way of looking at it, uh, but it does provide a platform that works well politically at home, right. sometimes to push forward reforms that the U.S. wants to see for reasons that make a bit more economic sense. But there is a danger of getting too trapped in that as the metric, uh, and, and many things which make sense to do won't have an immediate impact on the trade deficit. And of course, you run the risk of if trade deficits are per se viewed as so terrible, then it creates a temptation uh, and a sort of political feedback loop to take sanctions, to take actions of some sort against whomever you have a bilateral trade deficit with. And that's why we heard all the harsh talk about China, which was notably in abeyance during Trump's visit. Yeah. It's what we've heard about the, the complaints about the South Korea free trade agreement, NAFTA, and, and other such things. So I think it can point very much in the wrong direction, and that would really be the concern, even though some of what some of what lies behind those deficits are things that need to be addressed in terms of market openness and, and investment access and such in China. Yeah, so economists have been pushing for decades, right, to ignore the bilateral uh, trade deficit because mm -hmm. uh, it's completely meaningless. China is running a trade deficit with Korea, Japan, and all these countries to import all these components for iPhone. Yeah. Then they put the iPhone together and sell it to the U.S., and all the trade is accounted to China. So if you look at the net um, uh, trade surplus China has, it has going down. 
in the past 10 years, significantly, even more significantly, if you compare that as a percentage of GDP. So China is no longer this country that depends on export. Um, but of course, because of the last stop assembly uh, position that China is taking in this global supply chain, uh, this bilateral uh, trade deficit is very prominent. And as Jacques said, it's much easier just to pick up this number for the purpose of certain you know, policy positions than to tell people, hey, this is an irrelevant number. But the the other uh, one of the other issues that has been written about recently is also the, the issue of foreign direct investment, mm-hmm. where, where China is concerned. Mm-hmm. Where does that stand? For people that don't understand uh, that, where does that stand right now in China? How much are they seeing right now, and how much maybe is there an expectation by President Xi of that to increase significantly in the years to come? So you mean outward foreign direct investment yeah. to the rest of the world? You know, this is something that's a uh, two hundred fifty billion dollar deal yeah. signed uh, in the past two uh, two days. Um, it sheds some light on this direction. So if you look at the details, China is not just importing the liquefied, you know, oil from Alaska and from West Virginia. Uh, there is a detail about the Chinese companies going to those states to invest in infrastructure mm-hmm. to build those you know stations or um, transportation facilities and then get oil out of there so um, to a lot of policy uh, commentators this is an interesting term because Trump has been very determined not allowing Chinese companies to come in and do those investments especially in strategic areas well whether oil is strategic or not, you know, yeah. everyone has their own opinion. But um, it's interesting both in that and in the, the import of um, the Qualcomm chips. Um, yeah. Importing a Qualcomm chip used to be a sensitive area, you know, whether we should allow the Chinese to have the high-tech products or not. But it's part of the deal this time. So um, there is um, guess somewhere that whether this is, indicates some shift in policy. Jacques? Well, it's gotten to be a much more complicated landscape. I mean, if we were having this conversation a decade or two ago, we'd be talking about a simple story where China has wanted a lot of inbound foreign investment to bring in technology, to build capacity, to build its export platforms and so on. And China really wasn't investing abroad in any significant way. Then China got to the point where basically it didn't need foreign investment in terms of capital, but it still wanted it in certain sectors for reasons we talked about, know-how, intellectual property of various sorts, and uh, sort of management tech, all those kinds of things. And then China became a very important uh, outbound investor acquiring assets or building new things abroad. And so now it's a much more symmetrical but more complex relationship. So the U.S. complains that China has been using anti-monopoly law review and other mechanisms to prevent U.S. acquisitions of desirable targets in China, some of which have no strategic value whatsoever. They're economically valuable, but they're not national security sensitive. And China has adopted its own national security review process to reject foreign acquisitions in a fairly broadly defined set of sectors uh, that are considered national security sensitive. Part of that is tit for tat because China has complained quite loudly about U.S. restrictions on Chinese acquisitions of what we consider national security or national economic security sensitive assets. It's true China's been the biggest target of those restrictions, but still the vast, vast, vast majority of Chinese acquisitions go through. We're starting to see now is is China and the U.S. Uh, being pushed to invest in not just acquiring existing U.S. assets, but acquiring them and upgrading them perhaps, or even doing kind of more greenfield uh, investments. 
Well, and and that was one of the questions that was brought up uh, earlier this year was what level of investment would China potentially want to have uh, here in the U.S.? That's something that's been talked about. Well, and, and a variety of countries here in Asia. What, what's the expectation that that you have, Jacques? Well, I mean, it's, it's uh, hard to know how it's going to turn out in terms of numbers. Clearly, China's outbound foreign investment is is on the rise. Uh, there are a bunch of reasons for that. They have the capital to do it. The uh, sense that China is the land of opportunity for investing your capital compared to elsewhere uh, is a little questionable. Uh, now, now there are you know, opportunities abroad. Chinese companies have become more sophisticated about how to do this. So they're less wary of going out. Uh, we're still living in the shadow of a policy adopted some years ago uh, called going out. That is encouraging large Chinese enterprises to go out into the world and become internationally visible firms and take advantage of the opportunities. Uh, offered out there. Uh, and you know, China's just more capital rich than it used to be, too. So all these factors are coming together and maybe can layer onto that the expectation that uh, the renminbi is not likely to go up greatly in value. It's likely to drift down or at least not reach the heights that it uh, previously had. So you buy while you can while other assets are cheap. So there's all these things that are pushing in that direction. But I don't think we're going to see a massive increase. I think it's going to be just a long trend line. Yeah. Well, I agree. I, I think one reason why so far the policy has been very mixed, you know, on, on the policy side, um, they're sending different signals uh, to different people, is that China want uh, state-owned enterprises and other big companies to go out and take strategic assets. And if you can bring excessive capacity with you, even better. But they don't want businesses to go overseas for the purpose of diversifying their portfolio to hedge them selves against, you know, the drop in value, uh, currency value, and the so-called capital outflow, right? So right. Um, they, they send all these mixed, mixed signals because the moment you push companies to go overseas, a lot of them are going to bring capital out disguised as FDI. Um, so many small businesses are buying cash flow uh, properties here and there, yeah. not for the pur- purpose of management, but for the purpose of pro- portfolio diversification. So uh, the, from the policymaker side, they're very cautious about that. Uh, bring it up in, in the end, Jacques, but uh, obviously I think a lot of people were wondering, uh, as President Trump has made his way through Asia, what the conversations you think were like with all of these different entities where North Korea is concerned. And obviously with China, it's been uh, pretty well documented about the uh, the the uh, the different angles that, that China could be in where North Korea is concerned. Well, North Korea was one of the three goals of this trip, along with the trade issues and economic issues we've been talking about and this broader security concept for the Indo-Pacific. The question is how much we got on that. I think there was a a desire to shore up the closeness of alignment between the U.S. and Japan on the North Korea issue. Abe and Trump seem to be on the same page with that. There was a bit more work to be done in South Korea, engaging the new president there, who's been less hawkish on North Korea than his predecessor. And with Xi Jinping, I mean, there were noises in the right direction, but all China openly said on this, on the Trump visit, was that China would continue to and would faithfully implement the U.N. Security Council resolutions that impose new sanctions on North Korea. Now, there are two issues with that. Those sanctions don't go as far as Trump thinks we need to go. And secondly, there's been a history of slippage, shall we say, in implementation of those sanctions by China. Great having you both with us. Thank you, Jacques, for joining us on the phone today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Minwan. Great seeing you again. Thank, Thank you for you coming for in. Me. Thank you. Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.